Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is edition 202, and on the broadcast today, we are going to be hearing a conversation with author Mark Bray, who is an academic, an author, an activist. I got to know Mark in the context of Occupy Wall Street in New York City, and recently Mark has published a book that I would really encourage people to look up. It's called The Anarchist Inquisition, Assassins, Activists, and Martyrs in Spain and France. This book looks at the ways that the realities of anarchist direct action against power structures in Europe at the end of the 19th century really uh, shaped a lot of important ideas around what insurrectionary politics can achieve, and also how other political formations respond to the repression of anarchist action by the state. Uh, The book looks into coalitions that were built to support those anarchists who took direct actions in both Spain and France. The book is described this way. The Anarchist Inquisition explores the groundbreaking transnational human rights campaign that emerged in response to a brutal wave of repression unleashed by the Spanish state to quash anarchist activities at the turn of the 20th century. Anarchist bombings in theaters and cafes in the 1890s provoked mass arrests, the passage of harsh anti-anarchist laws, and executions in Spain and France. Yet, far from a marginal phenomenon, this first international terrorist threat has profound ramifications for the broader development of human rights, as well as modern global policing and international legislation on extradition and migration. I think Mark's coming at these topics from uh, an important lived experience as as an activist, and uh, I thought it would be interesting to talk to Mark about his work more generally and this recent book called The Anarchist Inquisition. So here's our conversation. So, well, I mean, first of all, looking at this intersection of contemporary and also historical momentous moments of of struggle for transformative change isn't always something that can be compartmentalized or packaged into the news headlines. But a lot of the research that you do, uh, I think, really gives body and depth to understanding the influence of uh, anarchist ideas or anti-authoritarian ideas in the way that contemporary activism is shaped. And I've noticed throughout your, your work this sort of like effort that you've done to communicate those historical moments to um, contexts of activism in the present. So I, I'd like to get into some of that and some of the recent projects you've been working on. But first of all, can you um, introduce yourself? And just for people who are tuning in and, and wondering about what you do, can you just share a bit about uh, your work? I know that you're obviously um, exploring for quite some time the intersections of social activism and more of an academic or research-based space. Right. Yeah. Well, my name is Mark Bray. Uh, I teach history at Rutgers University, New Jersey. I've been an activist involved in various projects for several decades. Um, I was involved in Occupy Wall Street in New York, for example. Uh, I wrote a book about that and focusing on the role of anarchism in New York specifically called Translating Anarchy. And in my academic work, I've focused on anarchism, radical left politics, 
with a focus at times on political violence and the media. Um, I wrote Anti for the Anti-Fascist Handbook, came out in 2017, um, which was an effort to put the historical scholarship on anti-fascism, which was largely at the time, although less so now, largely at the time focused on anti-fascism up through World War II with a lot of the, the activist experiences and um, more non-academic histories of anti-fascism in recent decades. Um, uh, most recently, I, I published um, uh, an academic book, although I think a book that non-academics would enjoy as well, called The, uh, the Anarchist Inquisition um, about propaganda by the deed, um, anarchist attacks on symbols of uh, oppression and human rights uh, at the turn of the 20th century in Spain and France. And as you suggest, um, I came to my interest in, in, in radical left politics through activism first and as an academic second. And I've always tried as much as is possible, although it is an interesting question to, to discuss how much it is possible to put those two worlds um, in conversation with each other and to try and use my scholarship to um, further resistance. So there's a lot to dig into there. Um, I think in a contemporary setting, there's a lot of, especially in France, you know, related to your most recent work, there's quite a lot of romanticization of anarchist moments and movements in French history, even by, you know, mainstream political spaces in France. But there is a through line between the history um, that you're talking about in the early 20th century, late 19th century, and now. And I think it could be interesting to sort of get into why you were wanting to explore um, those actions and those movements uh, in a contemporary context. I mean, uh, there, you know, there's some specifics like the sort of concept of sabotage and sort of like direct action tactics that really uh, came forth at that time. Um, but I do really appreciate what you just mentioned in looking at this idea of not historicizing this, these, these moments, but looking at how these histories are connected to the present. And obviously in the contemporary moment in France, um, which I'm more familiar with, but I would imagine also in Spain, there's a, there's a very much an importance of that connection. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly I, I try to historicize and, and bring things in, into the present, right? Um, and I, I think that on the one hand, the some of the most dramatic historical actors of my book were some of the anarchist bombers, many of whom, although not all, had a kind of anti-organizational insurrectionist politics. And what I mean by anti-organizational anti-organization beyond sort of an affinity group. They're very critical of anarchist labor federations or efforts to scale up forms of formal organizing. Um, and for the most part, um, their bombings were either unproductive or counterproductive in an, in an immediate sense. Um, so, you know, I, I'm certainly not, I don't, I didn't write the book with the, with the effort of trying to convince present day actors to do the exact same things as, as those folks. 
Um, but on the other hand, what I think is probably more relevant and more interesting from the book is what did anarchists and their allies do when these bombings provoked mass arrests and widespread repression and torture and executions of people who um, either definitely or most likely didn't do what they were accused of doing. And that, I think, was an interesting and largely successful era from from um, the mid-1890s up through the first decade of the 20th century of coalition building between anarchists and republicans and sometimes socialists in Spain, particularly in France, and uh, uh, across the Americas to varying extent, um, to try and argue that, you know, even if you're not an anarchist, even if you hate what these bombers are doing, the, this, this wave of repression is giving the state the uh, carte blanche to expand its repressive apparatus to the point where it will eventually target anyone who's doing something that they don't like. And there were interesting debates within the anarchist movement which resemble um, conversations, I think, around coalition building in anti-authoritarian spaces these days around sort of what are the criteria of working with other groups? Which groups can, can be brought into a project which are counterproductive? Should anarchists be working with non-anarchists? If so, in what ways? Towards what ends? Um, I mean, uh, I'm of the, the mindset that if anarchists don't work with non-anarchists, they'll never get anywhere because uh, a very small percentage of humanity uh, uh, formally adheres to those ideas. And so if you want to work with other people on projects, under what terms, towards what ends? And these campaigns that they organized to get their comrades out of prison were largely very successful. And I, I would argue managed to make state authorities more wary about indiscriminate brutal repression during that era than they would have been otherwise. Um, now, as far as today, I mean, in, in the conclusion of my book, I talk a little bit about um, Operación Pandora and, and similar operations that the Spanish state carried out against anarchists uh, about 10 years ago, who they accused of um, organizing bomb plots um, with very flimsy evidence. One of the pieces of evidence they used was that one of the accused people had some camping gas that you would use to make a fire on a camping trip and that this was evidence of what they were going to do. And, and similarly, although on different terms, this sparked a protest movement around the country against state authority. Um, but whereas what I find interesting is one of the what they would say back 100 years ago is these people are innocent, um, let them go. An interesting kind of um, version of that slogan that came up in the modern campaign was saying, um, ni, inocentes, ni inocentes ni culpables, neither innocent nor guilty. Like basically, to hell with with what the state has to say. We want them out of prison, whether they plan to blow these things up or not. Um, which is, I think, a, a, an interesting conversation starter around what is the orientation of anti-state actors towards state claims, both in terms of trying to delegitimize state claims, but also in terms, of, in terms of trying to accomplish a very real goal of getting people not in prison. Um, nevertheless, so I, I try to put those two things in, con in con conversation, and there still are anarchists today who uh, adhere to a similar kind of politics and even sometimes blow things up. Um, but it's much less uh, of a part of the movement than it was 100 years ago.
So I think it could be interesting for people to like maybe if you could get into one of those historical examples a little bit, um, you know, maybe just tell the story because you spent so much time researching that. (laughs) That would be great. I mean, for for my story, I'm going to focus on two incidents that represent a beginning and an end of the specific story that I tell. The first is El Proceso de Monchuic in 1896, where a bomb is thrown into a religious procession in Barcelona. Um, The authorities can't prove who did it, but they blame the anarchists. And they arrest somewhere between 400 and 800 people of all different left-leaning political stripes. About a dozen people are tortured and they get them to confess to this bombing. And this sparks um, a really an unprecedented campaign in the interest of what organizers called the rights of humanity, that for people who are interested in French history and politics, got a big boost of momentum after the Dreyfus Affair started in France, because a lot of Spanish activists, and for those who who are unaware, the Dreyfus Affair, as quickly as I can say, is when the Jewish captain Alfred Dreyfus in France was accused of treason. He didn't do it, but he was charged anyway. Um, And this campaign developed to liberate him and the, the antagonists of that came, campaign were proto-fascists, right? Um, so this, this encouraged a lot of Spanish organizers to be like, hey, look what France is doing. This is, they did this for one man in France, but look at all these people in prison in Spain. Let's do it. And generally speaking, it, it worked. Within a few years, other than the handful of people who were executed, of course, um, the rest were liberated. This set, the, set the, the kind of blueprint, I argue, for several similar campaigns for political prisoners over the next decade, culminating in the most famous one of the era, other than Sacco and Vanzetti, perhaps, which is the campaign uh, to liberate Francisco Ferrer, Ferrer Guardia, the Catalan anarchist pedagogical figure who founded the modern school in Barcelona in 1901. I have a separate a book of his writings called Anarchist Education and the Modern School that on PM Press, if you want to read more about Ferrer, anti-authoritarian pedagogy, and so forth. So he was probably, I would argue, involved in a plot to blow up the king um, in 1906 that failed. It's not proven. I can't prove it, but there's a lot of kind of circumstantial evidence that he was. And if you read the writings that he published under a pen name, it's certainly something he would have been very excited about happening. Nevertheless, fast forward a few years later, and the Tragic Week Rebellion um, bursts in the summer of 1909. This was a rebellion against conscription for a colonial war in Morocco that the Spanish government was organizing. And it turned into an anti-clerical rebellion for reasons that we can get into if you're curious, but that's too much of a, uh, maybe of a, uh, a tangent for now. But anyway, this rebellion starts against the war. It becomes an anti-clerical rebellion. Uh, the army's called in to put it down. It's too politically messy for the government to blame every faction and every group involved. So they want to find a few figureheads to blame. The main one becomes Francisco Ferrer, who definitely had nothing to do with it. Ironically, he really tried to lead the rebellion, but, but for various reasons, no one really wanted to hear what he had to say. So he really was completely uninfluential. He was targeted anyway. 
He was eventually executed. And this wave of anti-authoritarian plus their allies organizing, which I argue could be seen as kind of an early human rights campaign, uh, really develops into riots in, in countries like Belgium and Italy, into mass movements in the U.S., Latin America, um, even into North Africa and the Middle East. And the kind of anti-authoritarian educational model that he pioneered, although didn't invent, but pioneered, um, influences the modern school movement that develops across the world and uh, has resulted in some notable schools in um, the U.S. and Canada, among other countries. So the story that I'm telling here is in part about how the circumstances of the repression unleashed by these bombings pushed anarchists sort of away from the standard revolutionary playbook, so to speak, towards coalition building in the interests of liberating political prisoners. Um, and while the circumstances are significantly different from how things are today, I think that there's, there's, some, there's some challenges to think through there. A lot to get into. So, I mean, this is a great opportunity for people who are listening to our conversation to um, look up your work. And we'll share links about that um, in the show description. And uh, I'll also read it at the end of the program for those listening on the radio. Um, but in terms of understanding, you know, there's a lot of, I think, conceptual depths here if we think about the ways that direct action politics or campaigning beyond campaigning even just direct actions create a lot of political space shake up what is expected for political actors to um, participate in in terms of uh, protest in terms of how society um, deals with um, political conversation. And, and obviously this period in Western Europe is extremely influential for a number of reasons, one of them being, of course, the colonial power of Western Europe. Um, but I think on the mirror, or let's say on the flip side of that, there isn't as much understanding of the ways that social movements organized in that period in, in, in Western Europe and, and actually won a lot of space. So maybe in thinking about the present, a question that comes to my mind is um, when we think about uh, conceptions of what is politically possible, there's this tendency, I think, in organizing to sort of marginalize and scapegoat uh, people who take direct action outside of outside of quote unquote acceptable politics. Um, and then there's a tendency on the side of radical underground networks to sort of reject um, a sort of conceptual work or coalition building work often that looks at broader efforts. So I think like a lot of what you brought up um, is maybe not necessarily um, won't it won't draw a conclusion about today, but there's some really important um, through lines between what you're talking about and now. So I'd love if, if we could open up a bit of space to, for you to share what this all um, leads you to think about in the current context. Yeah. Um, well, it, yeah, this is a, maybe bit, a bit more based on my political experience than my historical research per se. But I think that the, the question for me with, with coalition building often is, on whose terms is the coalition built and what roles do the different actors play in determining what the coalition does? And, and so like those kinds of, I think, structural and strategic questions 
are kind of the prerequisite for me to think about what kinds of coalitions um, would allow me to practice my politics with others versus others that would make me feel like maybe I am, um, to put it maybe overly dramatically, cannon fodder for someone else's agenda that um, doesn't actually serve my my visions of, of social transformation. Now, now, back in the day, there were interesting debates along these lines. So even, for example, shifting gears slightly, thinking of um, the the Dreyfus affair in, in France, right? So when it gets going, you have, on the one hand, of course, the anti-Dreyfusards, the, the, the church and the reactionaries and so forth. And then a lot of the left starts to organize for Dreyfus, the, the, the imprisoned Jewish captain, saying, this is anti-Semitism. Um, he didn't do it. Let's get him out. And, and then the, some of the through lines are that, that are kind of interesting is like anti-militarism, right? So you have some on the left saying, this guy's in the military. You know, he can, he can take a hike. Who cares? Others saying, well, but this represents this larger social issue, which obviously I think should have been evident then, but especially in hindsight, like, yeah, fighting anti-Semitism is a big deal, even if this guy's in the military. Um, and, and similarly with Ferrer, Francisco Ferrer, this Catalan pedagogue, he manages to open this school in Barcelona, whereas other anarchists interested in pedagogy who wanted to open schools didn't because he ended up getting a lot of money because one of his wealthy students left him a really big expensive building in Paris in her will and he used the rent money from he was a landlord the rent money from that building to finance the school and a lot of other kind of radical activities and so you have some anarchists being like why are we putting all this time into defending this one rich guy when we have all these unknown anonymous comrades in prison that that no one's ever heard of so there's interesting issues also around what campaigns get attention um, what are the chal- uh, kind of um, dangers of kind of celebrity around causes or individuals? Who gets what support and when? Right? These have been issues as long as there have been such campaigns. Um, and I think that there's also what, what's kind of, I think is, is kind of um, strange and amusing is one of the main campaigners in the Spanish campaigns was an anarchist named Juan Monsain, who is probably best known as being the father of Federico Monsain, the um, leader of the CNT uh, during the Spanish Revolution and controversially the first woman government cabinet minister in Spanish history, despite being anarchist. So, but he, he, was, he was one of the main organizers of these campaigns. But he, he, he published this journal called La Revista Blanca where he wrote frequently under pen names to make it seem like there are more contributors than there were. And in ways that I think we would find to be ethically problematic today, if you wanted to write on medical things, he'd pretend to be a doctor. If you wanted to write on women's issues, he would pretend to be a woman, right? So which is, you know, bizarre and, and not a good idea. But he also sort of had this kind of like more purist pseudonym that he'd write to critique himself. So he also wrote against these these kind of coalition politics under a pen name because he, I think he felt a little bit conflicted about how it might be potentially watering down, quote unquote, um, anarchist politics. So I think that really the best that we can do from these kinds of, of histories is, is see through how different actors in different times were thinking through similar issues. But the, the constellation of considerations is, is so is so different. Um, 
Nevertheless, by doing this kind of coalition politics, this coalition organizing, they managed to get a lot of political prisoners out of prison. I think they gave the state a lot more to think about in terms of political, the, the, the blowback on political repression. Um, and then if you fast forward to the Spanish Revolution, which is a landmark moment in anti-authoritarian politics and history, despite ultimately failing, um, you have to build um, politics and ideas beyond those who ascribe to a specific political ideology if you ever want them to manifest into something important. So last point, and we'll just have a few minutes for this. I'm sure it could be a much longer answer, but um, very quickly, you talked about how this coalition building around political prisoners in Spain and France really set some parameters around what would be conceptions of like universal, quote unquote, human rights campaigning, which has its issues, but is an important, I think, framework of challenging power and creating space for people who don't have power to um, not be completely um, dehumanized. Um, so I think that that parallel to the present is really important because often we don't think about how social movements influenced these frameworks of, of power and legislation, but often it is social movements that created them? Yeah, well, j just to clarify, I, I don't argue that like when human rights became more of a formal thing from the UN onward in the 1940s, that that was because of anarchists or that they even directly influenced because they didn't. Rather, it's sort of a, more of an opposite point that conceptions that argue that all human beings are entitled to important aspects of living a fulfilled life, that notion uh, predates our modern formal human rights international law system. It's broader than that. And actually, when you take the kind of anarchist arguments for everyone being entitled to what they often called the rights of humanity, but sometimes called human rights as well at the turn of the 20th century, that is an interesting place to use some of the professed values of modern human rights politics against itself by digging into the inherent tension between um, uh, internationalism and statism, which is something that anarchist politics through this lens created a, an alternate vantage point to think through that. Um, so it, it sounds weird to a lot of people to think anarchism and human rights because today they are um, definitely not on the same page. Uh, but I think that if you kind of extract some of these core values and see how they manifested back 100 years ago, it's interesting to, to think through the possibility of making similar claims through a very different politics. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. That was a conversation with Mark Bray, uh, who is uh, an author, uh, an educator, and recently wrote the book, The Anarchist Inquisition, Assassins, Activists, and Martyrs in Spain and France. I'd encourage people to look it up. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph. I produce and host this program weekly. We air on CKUT 90.3 FM at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays on CGLO 1690 a.m. Also in GeoGeoGay in Montreal on Wednesdays at 8.30 a.m. on CKUT. 
WUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesdays, on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays, on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, B.C. on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m., on Met Radio 12.80 a.m. in Toronto at 5.30 a.m. on Fridays, and on CKCU 93.1 FM in Ottawa on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. You can find our archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. We are also a podcast. Look us up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, tell a friend. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I will speak to you next week.